Sustainability in Finance. Sustainability in Finance. A podcast hosted by the International Sustainable Finance Center in Prague. Join us and explore different perspectives of finance and its importance for the Central and Eastern European region. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our newest episode of Sustainability in Finance podcast. Today, we have the honor of welcoming Peter Sweetman, the CEO of Climate Strategy and Partners, a strategic consulting group in clean energy, innovation and energy efficiency that works with leading companies and policymakers on energy transition and many other climate topics. And of course, Peter is one of our amazing advisory board members of ISFC. Hello, Peter, and thank you very much for joining today. Hi, thanks for inviting me. So one of the one of the main privileges of this podcast, for me specifically as well, is that we get to talk to quite a few very inspiring and knowledgeable people. And Peter, I actually have attended quite a few events where you spoke and I always learn something new on a variety of topics. And I'm certain this conversation will also provide quite a lot of valuable insights. However, also in this podcast, we try to explore and understand people's motivation behind why they decided to work on sustainable finance and climate topics and what their role entails on a day-to-day basis. Let's combine these two aspects and maybe let's just dive in right now. So, Peter, you have spent decades or years working on finance with an extensive focus on climate finance and energy efficiency. So I know you started at JP Morgan in corporate finance, and then later you became a successful social entrepreneur founding different impact-led NGOs. So could you maybe tell us a bit more on how you decided to go on this progressive journey towards climate and energy transition. And when did you realize that this focus will be your next step in your career? Well, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for the question. I always think sometimes when you look backwards at your career, you tend to reinvent things and and things aren't as clear cut as the way they sound. But I graduated in the summer of 1990 from Cambridge University in the UK in engineering and management studies. And at that time, the large companies came to Cambridge to to recruit directly. And so I signed up to join JP Morgan in corporate finance because in those days, they offered a six-month training program in New York. And as an engineer, and you know, I didn't feel, I feel I felt I needed uh, that training to know really what banking was about. And then for a decade, I worked in that sort of 24-7 world of investment banking and international capital markets. It was that experience and the discipline that allowed me really to be a social entrepreneur at the turn of the century and address the broader social and environmental challenges because I'd really got the tools that JP Morgan had provided me in the networks. So um, as you said, in 2001, I launched Charity Digital that's a UK social enterprise. It's enabled over 68,000 charities to save around a quarter of a billion pounds on technology investments, and it's supported over 400,000 charity professionals learn about the digital transformation. I guess the idea that I had had, which became its secret source, was to seek donated or discounted hardware and software from big software giants like and hardware giants like Cisco, Microsoft, and others, and work with smaller providers and programmers to offer charities special uh, services and discounted access as a shared technology backbone. And this therefore reduced their costs, trained their staff, and extended their reach into projects and donors. Again, the world in, in just early 2000s is very different from the one it one it is today, although that organization, I'm happy to say, continues to be a leader in that field. 
At the same time, after leaving JP Morgan, I, I was also co-founder of New Philanthropy Capital, and that was an NGO designed to support UK charities, philanthropists and funders and social enterprises maximize their social impact. Uh, Think NPC has now advised over 58 UK charities to be more effective, and it's developed hundreds of training sessions and impacted policies in the UK and the G8. And it was really working with these charities, and particularly WWF as a client of Charity Digital, that I remember hearing about climate change for the first time at a lecture given by James Cameron, then was the lawyer and climate advocate who had an idea to launch the world's first climate change investment firm that became Climate Change Capital. So it was really listening to James in 2004 that I realized climate change would overturn the whole world's capital markets and they would have to be, become green and sustainable, which again, may sound obvious today, but it was certainly not obvious at all in 2004. And so I signed up to join the startup Climate Change Capital, identified a new chief executive to take Charity Digital uh, on. And at Climate Change Capital, over the next uh, five years, uh, we launched many climate-themed investment funds, including four carbon funds, the first venture capital trust for renewables, clean tech, private equity, green buildings funds, and we ended up managing 1.5 billion euros at its peak uh, in 2009, just uh, unfortunately before the financial crisis. Well, first of all, it sounds to me like maybe one of the reasons you left JP Morgan was also because you do have that entrepreneurship at heart, <laughs> starting quite a few different companies. Yeah, I think my dad was an entrepreneur. And so I, I felt as though that was probably one of the underlying features that uh, kept me driving forwards into that direction. Yeah, no, that definitely sounds like that. And we did speak before, but I'm actually I didn't realize it was so many different companies that then you also, as you mentioned, so focus on digitalization, which I personally believe is very close to climate topics and also to under to sustainability. And so, okay, so and that led to all the way to the climate strategy and partners. And it would be really interesting to hear more about your current role, but also what it means in terms of day-to-day -day work. So you focus on different topics, as I mentioned at the beginning, but where exactly does your focus lie? Maybe on, Or maybe where do you see that you bring the biggest value to the climate discourse? Sure. So, uh, so climate strategy, it's the firm I started in 2009 after leaving climate change capital. And at that point, just in the financial crisis, I was looking for a way to turn the experience that I had into some form of business. So uh, we do three things. Uh, we work with governments and technocrats in the policy formation process to help drive more private sector investment and finance into energy efficiency and climate innovation. Um, we have a subsidiary that supports Spanish cities, structure and finance energy savings in lighting and other public buildings and infrastructure. And we support leading European companies in the implementation of their climate strategies. So we think that it's only through a full and detailed understanding of the upcoming regulatory pipeline that you can well advise companies on the timings and the upscaling of their sustainability efforts, and that you can only really talk knowledgeable about knowledgeably about the state of investments in energy efficiency by doing it. So people then, after, after I said that, they often sort of wonder what all that meant. So a good example of our work, I think, is working for over, well, for around a decade with Ferrovial, which is one of the world's largest uh, infrastructure groups. Uh, it's a Spanish company who in 2010, we helped draft uh, and implement the first group-wide climate change strategy. Then the next year, in 2011, we helped them set and implement initial uh, greenhouse gas targets uh, for 2020. 
And then in 2014, we helped the group implement an internal shadow carbon price for its global activities across multiple sectors. In 2018, we helped them undertake the TCFD recommended climate risk and opportunity assessments globally. And in 2019, we supported the management team set science-based targets and carbon budgets for 2030. And the impact of all of that was that Ferrovial uh, is the, the first Spanish company and the first global infrastructure manager to achieve its 2020 re uh, emission reduction targets, which it did in 2019, as certified by the Science Space Targets Initiative. And the, the group is committed to reduce by 32% the emissions uh, generated by its own activity by 2030. So I guess, uh, again, uh, the work we've done has evolved with our clients. We do different things today than the ones we did in 2010, but it's only through being at the cutting edge of the delivery of such projects that allows you to really see the future sort of near at hand. Yeah, and also see, you know, basically from the beginning, because it maybe doesn't sound like too many years, but I think these topics have developed so quickly, especially over the last, let's say, four or five years, that it definitely is really interesting to hear, you know, being pioneers and being at the forefront of some of the strategy or climate strategy at big companies. So that's definitely really interesting over the years. And uh, I know, so it's not only strategy as such. I mean, you also mentioned cities, and I, I know you work on climate finance, and then also actually do you remember your work from, I think, two years two years ago on, on the EU taxonomy. It's a quite a big variety of sustainability uh, focuses. And one of them, I know that now in last year in November with Climate Strategy and Partners, you worked and published a report on the EU renovation loan, which is introducing an, a renovation-focused financial instrument to broaden the access to energy efficiency finance to homeowners in Europe. It was something we recently discussed in one of our events focused on real estate here in Prague. Could you maybe tell us more about this financial instrument and maybe what is the importance of this initiative and some of the key findings you found while working on this? Yeah, sure, of course. Well, I mean, as as we record, European policymakers um, are just agreeing the updated recast energy performance of buildings directive. And of course, saving energy remains the cheapest, safest and cleanest way to reduce our reliance on fossil fuel imports and make Europe more economically and politically resilient. However, EU buildings need 275 billion euros of annual investments to be fit for net zero and fossil energy independent future. Uh, public money is just insufficient. So around 20 to 40 billion has been allocated to buildings renovation in the national recovery plans and from other public sources. But as you can probably tell, there's a huge missing amount of renovation funds that just needs to come from buildings owners because they will benefit through a combination of energy savings and increased property value. To give you a sense, EU, so residential EU homes are worth around 17 trillion euros in total, and they have about 7 trillion of mortgage debt lent against them. So tracting one from the other, you get there's 10 trillion euros worth of home equity. Um, and against that, I believe that we need to borrow around a fifth, so 2 trillion euros, to convert that into deep renovations and therefore deliver those energy savings and property appreciation. So with some exceptions today in the market, home renovation loans often come with high interest rates for uncertain results. 
delivered through somewhat complex processes. And it's time, in my opinion, that the EU institutions work together with member states to de-risk renovations for homeowners by offering secure, low interest rates through simple procedures with guaranteed results. So what is the EU renovation loan, therefore? It's actually a combination of three existing EU-level tools, which I think can then be offered to homeowners through the networks of 138,000 bank branches. The uh, three tools I'm referring to are an EU guarantee, an ECB, European Central Bank Liquidity uh, Program, and a trusted network of accredited renovation project managers. So just breaking those down, the EU guarantee is a very cost-effective way to allow banks to offer, banks and lenders to offer EU renovation loans to clients who can't access green mortgages. So we have buildings owners who are among the older retired and the working segments, working family segments of who are very vulnerable to energy prices, but either because they're too old or their borrowing uh, or their income levels won't allow them to access or increase their existing mortgages. So an EU guarantee covering the deep renovation works would allow them to unlock their home equity cost-effectively to reduce their bills and improve the accessibility of their homes. So we also believe an, a zero-coupon structure, which allows essentially interest payments to accrue until the final maturity or the sale or transfer of the property would further improve the cash flow impa impacts to them. Then uh, the second component was an ECB liquidity um, structure. So that would be a targeted long-term refinancing operation, just to use the correct term, which allows financing institutions and credit institutions to place renovation loans with the ECB at an attractive uh, funding rate. So that just means that they can access ECB liquidity, that's funding, to make the operation of extending an e-renovation loan to their clients attractive. Uh, and then thirdly, we obviously need a trained and accredited network of hundreds of thousands of trustworthy project managers to provide these millions of high quality renovations to those homeowners. So uh, the, the best sort of example here is the German government and its energy agency, Dana, working together with public bank KFW, manage a national network of 13,000 energy efficiency experts. These uh, individuals provide high quality renovation advice and they co-sign renovation loans, providing the confidence and traceability for project management in case of uh, performance of those loans. And, and I calculated that if each expert could do 10 renovations a year, then the EU would need 350,000 of them to deliver its 3.5 million annual, annual renovation target. So I guess we argue, or I argue, that buildings renovation cannot be delivered at scale until the supply chains are mature and delivered at massive retail service efficiency. In the finance world, this can be provided by retail-facing financial institutions, but they will need the guaranteed support and the incentives of the EU renovation loan to invest in developing and serving that critical market. On that note, then, maybe just from my understanding, so when you, when you work on such financial instrument, are banks or maybe bank banking associations part of the discussion normally trying to get you know their feedback as well and maybe their say absolutely so the best part of probably two decades i've maintained very regular discussions with financial institutions and their associations a lot of them sort of bilateral discussions um, and often also in, in forums and seminars in brussels and the capital cities so absolutely necessary to listen and take in all the input, the design input in such an instrument. And in fact, 
again, an idea like the, the e-renovation loan doesn't sort of come up by accident. Or I didn't invent it sort of in the bath. As some people sort of think ideas come. This is really the result of, uh, you know, probably 10 years of those conversations piece by piece sort of figuring out if this doesn't work then we ha- maybe we have to adjust that if that doesn't work we have to adjust this and multiple conversations upon conversations so absolutely yes a new financial instrument needs to essentially come with the solutions as to why the old ones didn't work and that's why i've focused on these three key components and the mixture of the public private sort of uh, strengths as it were to make something that uh, i think can have the impact that that uh, it's needed. It's um, even here in Czech Republic, actually, there's a good example of an instrument focused on energy efficiency and renovations, especially for homeowners called New Green, New Green Savings, which is a very loose translation I just did here. I completely agree. And I think even from my perspective, we're talking to not only financial institutions, but also to different associations, there's a growing and increasing demand from people and as they understand more about sustainability and maybe more about green products. So I think we are definitely on the right track. And, you know, already having this forward-looking lens (laughs) I put on, because I do know that you are actually part of quite a few different initiatives and networks, and you also act as an advisor to, for example, Climate Bond Initiative, and you're part of Ashoka Support Network and many, many other initiatives globally. So I think that it, that probably gives you a very interesting and comprehensive view at some of these trends and challenges, not only in the EU, but also outside. So what would you say are some of these trends? Like, What do we expect for, let's say, next five or 10 years? Well, thanks for the question. For me, I think the three biggest developments in the climate and energy efficiency landscape are, firstly, the need to move on from gas. So with uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, the transition fuel narrative really, for me, came to an abrupt end. European buildings and industries are increasingly expensive to heat and run with LNG. And the cost effectiveness of energy efficiency investments just really went through the roof, which is one of the the reasons why I think that you've seen this this increased demand uh, for sustainability. The second thing I think is the is really what I call the race for clean tech innovation. So the United States uh, came back into the climate sort of game uh, really with their Inflation Reduction Act, which brings really the significant power of the US and unleashes a new domestic gold rush for climate innovation. Nevertheless, I think the EU climate and energy policy framework continues to lead the US And many clean tech future unicorns can clearly grow to scale here in Europe and also in the US. And yet the competition, of course, just got much hotter. And then the third and and connected, of course, topic for me is strategic autonomy. So Europe clearly has to own its own clean tech future. The energy crisis and the supply chain crisis and the fragile nature of global trading regime in high-tech products are all calls to action for the same thing to me, which is to take European climate innovation to scale, to triple the build rate of renewables, and to accelerate the decarbonization of our economies for all the right reasons. So if you think of those three combining features for us in in energy efficiency, we need to have uh, more skilled project managers and more innovation in the supply chains and the business models to deliver deep renovation and kind of like you 
said, I think energy market reform, which is particularly relevant file coming up, and including time of use pricing for renewable energy and the ability to use more exact sensors and artificial intelligence can offer solutions like pay for performance, renovation, and opportunities for, for homeowners, which we really haven't seen before in this combination of digital and green future. Yeah, that is definitely a very good overview of the main trends and things to focus on. And you also, you did mention skilled project managers, which let's be honest, that is very much dependent also on education. So as I said in the beginning, then I do take advantage of speaking to some very inspiring people. And I do like to ask some <laughs> some more personal questions as well. So maybe on the note of not only education, but you know, young people starting their careers and creation, so to speak, of skilled managers. What would be maybe one piece of career advice you would give to people starting their career now? Maybe in sustainability or just in general? It's funny. I never, I never thought of my own career as a career. It was, it was a series of days leading to the next. But I think in retrospect, I could have probably done better if I had thought of it as a career. And so, again, if I think backwards, I would say, and I do say, your career is going to be long and you should think of it like a marathon, you know, not, not a sprint. And I think while my career has been somewhat unconventional, it really, and I think many careers tend to have three phases. So for me, phase one is when you need to work really hard and train and embed skills, discipline and networks to allow you to build the future you want. So for me, phase one was about a decade and it was this JP Morgan time. And then I think phase two, at least for me, and, I, and often is when you tend to sort of specialize and elevate yourself to be the best you can be in the specialist field that motivates you the most. So for me, uh, in phase two, I started out as a social entrepreneur. I found climate quite quickly and I became a specialist in climate finance and energy efficiency. And then phase three, I guess phase none of this is particularly, but phase two, I guess, can be one or two decades. Phase three, I suppose, is when you start to rely on your experience and judgment. So by this stage, you should have aimed to have done so many transactions or attended so many client meetings or written so many articles that you know the difference between what's good and what's great in your field. And hopefully the great things that you produce in stage three of your career will have some lasting and positive impact on your life and the lives of others. I completely agree. And it's actually really, really well explained. I'm trying to identify which stage I am exactly, but <laughs> this, this really helps. So we mentioned this exactly depending on those phases, but I, I do know that you, not only in terms of network, but also in terms of lecture sharing knowledge and different client meetings, you have definitely met quite a few very inspirational and interesting people. And I'm very tempted to ask as well, maybe who has been someone, let's say, the most inspirational person you have met? And maybe why exactly do you still remember that? Thanks for the question. I mean, it's a difficult question, of course. Um, I've been lucky enough to meet some really inspiring people. But if I had to pick one, then I think he would be the late Joel Joffe. So Joel was the chairman of Oxfam when I met him in the year 2000. So notably, he was in his youth the defense attorney for Nelson Mandela in the 1963 Rivonia trial, after which he moved to the UK to set up Hambro Life Assurance. So he was an, an entrepreneur and he was made a life peer or a member of the House of Lords just 
before I'd met him. So for me, the meeting was, I was extremely sort of concerned and well-prepared, but he was disarmingly charming. He was very humble. and, And yet at the same time, he was incredibly direct and strikingly intelligent he, I remember he, he never drove anywhere. He always used the train and the metro to get in and out of meetings. After I first met him, he pledged his support um, for Charity Technology Trust. That was the name of Charity Digital uh, when I took the idea to him. And he offered to be the chairman of my board of patrons. And he opened his Rolodex to meet both big charities and London business angels. I remember that his foundation provided us a grant. Both, so we were raising money for the idea at the time, and his he provided both a grant and a loan that was extremely innovative. So typically, sort of charitable organisations didn't accept loans of startup capital, but he felt that because we were doing technology, uh, that would pay pay back sometime in the future. And uh, in fact, it did. Um, and I remember sort of how risky i thought the loan was at the beginning but we needed everything we could get to build that business and also remember i think it was around 10 years later being very delighted when we were able to repay his loan and and i think when that day came he actually said that it was all right and that he would invest half of it back in the growth of the social enterprise so it's interesting that i didn't even know whether he had thought he was going to see the money back of the loan, but uh, we were able to repay it. And I just, yeah, I always remember being very impressed with the way he thought. It's really interesting when, when I'm hearing to this story to also, you know, put it in parallel with your previous answer where you have different stages of your career, then this is probably also, let's say, stage four, you could say, right? Where you inspire, support others with your network with your knowledge and maybe the support as well and it's really interesting on like how pivotal that can be in someone's other someone else's career as well hopefully i can't believe i'd ever be quite up to the level of all of the people that i've i've met but uh, if someone wants to be inspired and can be inspired then i would certainly say one other final thing which is serendipity is this curious purely definable concept of how good things happen to good people who are in the right place at the right time. But putting yourself in the place, putting yourself in the frame and doing the thing that you feel passionately about is the thing that gives you the contacts and the, so that you can't see step four until you're on the edge of step three. And so it's about doing the things you have to do to get yourself to the place you need to be. And it's only when you look back that you can plot the path. But when you're walking the path, you just have to have confidence and go in the direction that you feel is correct. And this is a very, very good thought to finish our conversation with as well. So thank you so much, Peter, for the insightful conversation. And we wish you all the best to you and also to Climate Strategy and Partners. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. And thank you also to all our listeners to stay tuned for the upcoming episodes with other inspirational leaders in sustainable finance. Thank you for listening to Sustainability in Finance. Check out our website at isfc.org and make sure to follow us on social media for more content. We hope you join us for the next episode.